Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest for this episode is Tristan Harris. Tristan is the president and co-founder of the Center for Humane Tech. Prior to that, he worked as a design ethicist at Google. Before that, was a tech entrepreneur. Welcome, Tristan. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Tristan was uh, uh, on the show about a year ago and with uh, in episode EP38 to talk more generally about the work of the Center for Humane Tech. And we talked about a broad list of issues at the intersection of technology and society. But today we're going to focus on issues raised in the recent uh, Netflix film, The Social Dilemma, in which Tristan was the lead narrator, and I happen to know was uh, significantly involved in the in the whole planning uh, of the film. So Tristan, how did the Social Dilemma film do? Yeah, well, The Social Dilemma actually broke all records for Netflix in terms of documentary films. It's now been seen by an estimated 100 million people in about 190 countries and in 30 languages. Um, And I think what makes me excited about that is that I think everyone, frankly, people who are probably not as attuned to your podcast and been following some of these trends, people feel so confused about what is going on in the world uh, and this kind of breakdown of common ground and the inability to even have a shared uh, conversation. And I think what the social dilemma does is create new common ground about the breakdown of common ground and how we how we lost it. Uh, going through topics like addiction, polarization. I mean, this has now become the kind of standard agenda of how, you know, the news is daily in a daily basis talking about these issues. It's incredible how much case making we had to do over the last, you know, five years that now everyone just takes as obvious and given. But, you know, the thing that distinguishes the film is it has all of these tech insiders from the inventor of the like button, Justin Rosenstein, to the guy who brought the business model of advertising to Facebook, Tim Kendall, who said famously in the film that, you know, what I'm worried about is that it causes civil war and that this thing does cause people to kill other people and kill themselves. And it's amazing how much uh, that felt like too extreme a statement to make at the beginning. And I remember there was actually a moment in the editing process of the film when someone said, uh, that sounds like too extreme a statement. I mean, civil war, do you really want to say that? And there was a big debate about cutting it out. And eventually they kept it in. And now so many people looked at the events of January 6th and said, this is, uh, you know, this was perfectly predicted by the social dilemma. So there's a lot more to say about it. But I, you know, I think the film has become a common basis of understandings that now we can proceed and say, okay, how do we unwind ourselves, the collective psyche from this mind warping process that we're now 10 years into. And, and I think people have to see, yes, of course, we've always had partisan media. We've always had partisan radio, um, extreme radio, extreme television uh, views. But we, we haven't ever had this sort of self-reinforcing cycles of hyper-personalized information uh, or affirmation, I should say, uh, of what you would want to believe. When you really see that we're 10 years into that mind-warping process that leaves us less and less common understanding of, of reality, uh, it, it really makes it almost impossible to do anything. And that's the kind of broader problem I'm concerned about is um, if you think of a society's problem-solving capacity uh, as kind of a societal IQ, IQ is really less of an intelligence quotient and more a quotient of what is your capacity to solve problems. So you can think about IQ as an individual thing, but if you think of it as a collective thing, our society's problem-solving capacity 
essentially social media drops that to zero. Uh, and that's that's really my biggest concern, especially when you consider the geopolitical race uh, between the West and China. Um, you know, we're sort of just falling into constant division and outrage and conflict and the inability to ever see a charitable part of what you're saying and try to agree with it and build on top of it and instead just fall into division. And I think that's metastasized into culture. So it's not even just technology driving that now. It's like you could take away the technology and we're all running malware, divisive malware in our own minds. Though I do like to not be too pessimistic because, yes, there's a lot of bad that comes from uh, the networks and the, particularly the social platforms. But let's also remember there's lots of very interesting organizing and ideas being created and people finding the other on social media. While the temptation is is there to hit the delete button, there's still a lot of good, uh, though I still I do believe I'm along with you guys that uh, somewhere probably around 2005, 2006, uh, when advertiser-only uh, business models became practical with the uh, moving ahead of Moore's Law, the balance between the good and the bad started swinging more towards the bad. And we're probably fairly far into that field now. But let's not forget, there's a lot of good too. Well, let's let's actually just stop on that for a second, because I think people, your listeners won't really trust uh, our conversation if we don't steel man what is good about social media. And could we actually even divide a line uh, between what we like about it and what might be damaging or let's say unsafe, unpredictably uh, risky and unsafe. Having the ability to go look up on an address book online and find, you know, high school friends of yours from 20 years ago and reconnect with them or old, you know, sweethearts or, you know, crushes or, you know, whatever, or blood donors, right? You could find um, blood donors to for rare diseases or conversation groups. All of those things can exist. It's really this advertising business model and the virality of user-generated content and a business model that's based on having this asymmetric AI pointed at your brain, playing chess against your mind, knowing your next move before you know your next move, and then using hyper-personalization and confirmation bias to deliver that perfectly tuned political red meat, lab-created uh, political red meat in front of you, that's really where the problem arises. And so we can actually separate out Facebook as kind of an address book uh, or sort of a, a directory of basic services and, and conversations in small groups like it kind of was in 2005, 2006, from this kind of um, you know runaway engagement machine, this Frankenstein that can't be controlled, and I think you know what the film The Social Dilemma was really trying to say is that this business model that powers this this kind of uh, unsafe you know unchecked virality model, where you know anything that gets the most clicks, likes, and shares goes viral, that's what's kind of unsafe. Now, obviously, there's goods that come in that space too. We get to hear about niche you know scientists or. Who are, who are doing independent research of COVID and might you know find something that later gets contributed into the commons. That's all great. The problem is we don't have a good way to gate uh, those kinds of things coming in and lots of you know bullshit essentially winning. And, and I think the surface area of bullshit is much bigger than the surface area of these uh, edge cases and wins. And that doesn't mean I want to take it away. We just need a safer way that this can be negotiated so we don't end up with crazy town as the, the new public square and culture. And again, in terms of absolute aggregate time people spend on social media, it may well be that they spend much more time in the good than the bad. But the impact of the bad is unfortunately getting very bad. Uh, as you know, I've been involved with the creation of the online world since 1980 when I went to work for The Source, uh, which was the world's first consumer online service where we had most of what's on the web today, minus porn. Uh, by 1982, we even had an early precursor of something called social media. Uh, but a lot of it was based around hobbies, you know, okay, guys that own Packards or, you know, people that were interested in a computer language or uh, I remember even on the on the source, there was a very active sub community about intentional communities way back yonder. 
And that, you know, per, has persisted throughout, you know, uh, the next generation, CompuServe and AOL had a lot of that kind of ability to concentrate uh, narrow interests from far afield so that they're strong enough to have a community. And there's still a tremendous amount of, out, of that out there you know, on the web it's and on social media, but it's this other stuff, uh, you know, where the, where the shit storms arise. And in Frank, as we'll talk about, are kindled by the algorithms, not because they want to kindle a shit storm, but because that's what they do. Uh, before we go on further, I'd like to say, uh, in my own view, damn enjoyable film, uh, worth seeing if you haven't. And about the impact, I can certainly confirm that from my uh, limited perspective. I remember a week after it came out, I watched it on the second night it was out. I uh, happened to be talking to a 75-year-old grandmother I know, and who's a good friend of my wife and I's. And you know, she said that her and her husband had watched it the night before, and, and they were like all stirred up about it. It was it was great. So this small town Virginia, uh, by day four, it was penetrating the 75-year-old grandmas. Hi, Betty. <laughs> Let's start first with the harms before we get to the mechanisms, because I think those are somewhat. Uh, while they're re- obviously related, uh, it'd probably be useful to talk about them separately. So what are some of the things you guys uh, surfaced in the film about the harms of social media? Yeah, well, uh, we often talk about the harms of social media as kind of a climate change of culture. I mean, when you look at the news and they talk about various harms of social media, you might see an article one day on addiction or mental health of kids, another article another day on shortening attention spans, multitasking, the inability to do you know things that are productive because we're just constantly bombarded? You might see another article about um, you know polarization, or you might see another article about you know far right extremism, far left extremism uh, on the rise because of social media. You might see other articles about uh, as was just happened. There was showing that on the during the January sixth insurrection, Facebook was actually showing ads uh, saying what is it? Give violence a chance, give violence a chance, uh, to insurrection groups and letting you buy t-shirts and gear, military grade tactic, uh, tactical gear, things like this. So when you look at all of these examples, they can sound like a bunch of different things, but what we like to do is say, well, imagine that before we had this unifying concept for the greenhouse gas model of climate change, and we understood the emissions connection to coral reefs and, uh, deforestation and, and, and all of these things. Um, those would be seen as separate events. You'd have some people studying the coral reef, some people studying the melting glaciers, some people studying Amazon deforestation, some people studying dead zones in the ocean. And there wasn't kind of a unified model for why all these things are happening. And we like to think of what's happening with social media and this business model of attention extraction, this race to the bottom of the brainstem to uh, deliver more and more predictable dead slabs of human behavior, uh, that that produces this set of effects that we can predictably say, well, continue in in society. So in other words, a person in the attention economy to these platforms is worth more if they have shorter attention spans, if they're addicted as opposed to not addicted, if they're uh, isolated uh, versus if they're connected with their friends, if they're uh, polarized, uh, outraged, falling into extremism, uh, and disinformed, because that means that the business model was successful at producing essentially lots and lots of engagement. And so, you know, at the end of the film, Justin Rosenstein, the inventor of the like button, borrowing a line really from our friend Daniel Schmachtenberger, who you've had on this podcast several times, you know, as he says so eloquently, so long in this economic model, a whale is worth more dead than alive, and a tree is worth more as two by fours than as a living tree. Now we're the tree, we're the whale, we are worth more when we are addicted, outraged, polarized, disinformed, uh, and so on. Than if we're actually a thriving, you know, citizen uh, who is 
you know, critically examining his or her own choices and, and trying to make the, make do in the world. And, and that's the thing that we, we sort of say is the climate change of culture, that those effects will only continue because as this gets more aggressive, AI is going to know more about us rather than less about us. It's going to be able to know our weaknesses uh, better than we know ourselves with more accuracy, not less. It's going to have more data on us in the future, not less. It's going to be able to addict us more to getting attention from other people, not less in the future. It will be better at virtualizing our experience, giving us virtual mates, virtual chatbots, virtual friends, virtual worlds that will outcompete the difficulties of and challenges of a, of a physical reality that are simply not as competitive to a virtual mate that is right there next to you. Uh, now I'm kind of veering into the diagnosis territory, which is the thing that connects all of these harms is that technology is hacking increasingly more and more of human weaknesses. The sort of singularity folks got it wrong. We were all watching out for the moment when technology would sort of take off and, uh, and get smarter than humans and take our jobs and you know, be smarter than our IQ. And that was always thought to be 20, 30 years away. But we missed this much earlier point when technology doesn't overwhelm our strengths, but it undermines our weaknesses. And uh, that's how you can look at all these harms as they all come from a progressive hacking or undermining of human weaknesses. Uh, you take distraction and information overload. Why are we seeing that? Because technology hacked or overwhelmed our seven plus or minus two short-term memory and the limits of our executive control system trying to focus on what it's trying to do. And that was kind of like the Marshall Islands or the, the kind of first big jump in the climate change of culture that we undermined um, you know, the limits of our, of our prefrontal cortex and our minds. Then it starts to overwhelm or undermine um, showing us things that stimulate our emotions and our amygdala. Uh, hate speech, uh, polarizing, you know, political red meat, things like this. And that drives up political polarization. So you can keep going through, but I think that's the kind of core diagnosis of the film that really follows through our work at the Center for Humane Technology. Another couple that people don't seem to bundle with these, and you guys haven't historically, but I think are, are related and are worth thinking about, uh, was we've also been hacking the, you know, the midbrain, not necessarily the amygdala, but other parts of the midbrain uh, with deep sexual hooks. Even back in the beginning uh, of the web, I think 1994, I saw the numbers, 25% of the traffic on uh, the internet in 1994 was porn. Right. Uh, and then, you know, really cynical exploitations of human, uh, you know, deep behavioral hooks with things like Tinder. Right. I mean, that's just depraved that we'd have a society that operates on something like Tinder. And yet it's an obvious exploit. You know, anyone that's hung around, you know, young people know that, uh, you know, sex, sexual anxiety and all that is just, you know, an off the chart lever to pull. And Tinder is, you know, essentially a methamphetamine to work that particular line of human anxiety and libido. And you know, those are other domains where uh, they just get better and better. I just love your, your framing of exploiting human weakness. You know, again, you know, think about that. You know, we've had, you know, our society has, has had to deal with that before, right? Uh, a well-known human weakness is alcohol. And for a long time, alcohol was unregulated in the United States. Uh, you know, in colonial America on the frontiers, they say that the average adult male drank close to a quart of whiskey a day. Ah, right. And then uh, first we had prohibition, which was a bit of a shit show, as we know. Turned out to be a catalytic surface for organized crime on a vast scale and political corruption and everything else. But on the other side of it, we did have a pretty stringent uh, regulation of alcohol. Addictive drugs like heroin, again, they amazingly, they were legal to about 1910. Then we realized that 
the harms they had uh, were extreme. And then even things like marijuana, where uh, we've realized the harms aren't as bad as people claim they were. We still don't want people under 21 using it, at least in theory. So we have all, you know, we have dealt with physical phenomena, you know, drugs and alcohol, et cetera, uh, cigarettes uh, that hack our weaknesses. Again, I love that phraseology. Uh, and, you know, we have chosen as a society to do something about it. So, you know, maybe the time uh, to do something about these particular uh, forms of exploitations of our human weaknesses. Uh, Gambling is another one, another good example. Uh, gambling yeah, it was certainly legal in the 19th century. Anybody who watches a Western, you know, uh, the poker tables in the corner is a, is a standard part of that. That's more or, less, more or less true to life. But we realize that, you know, 10 or 15% of Americans are just incapable of stopping their gambling addiction. And so, you know, we regulate it, probably don't regulate it enough. But so there, I think it's uh, useful to make the point that uh, exploitation of human weakness via business models is not new with, uh, with the online world. And, and I think we, just to make sure we're really steel manning, um, you know, where the cynicism of some of your listeners might come in here. So we, we obviously know that it's not a new thing for there to be uh, features of society or industries that are in domains that are all about hacking human weaknesses, whether it's porn or alcohol or gambling. And so I just want to acknowledge, you know, those are the almost the, the basic ingredients, the kind of 19th century, 20th century uh, versions of um, something that's existed for a long time. But imagine you point AI, and the same way we have AI for doing drug discovery, right? Can we actually use AI to come up with brand new drugs that'll actually solve problems uh, that, that we couldn't discover on our own? Um, and suddenly they're going to come up with whole new cocktails, whole new combinations of things that'll actually help us uh, heal uh, things that we would see as unsolvable before that. This time we have the exact adversarial opposite things. And I, I think, you know, this is all very obvious, I think, to many of your listeners. I think this point now used to feel novel, but it's um, hopefully dead dead, and, and, and sort of easy for everyone to grasp now. But the book uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat that was written in 2012 by Michael Moss, the New York Times, really um, got this for me because he talks about the evolution of, you know, big food and these industrial food companies that that used to just, you know, discover or come up with Cheez-Its as some basic formula, you know, someone just made this sugar, this uh, salty, cheesy uh, cracker. But then of course, what happens over time is people don't realize the amount of testing and the amount of hyper-precision engineering of, um, you know, mouthfeel and uh, uh, a whole bunch of other features. I forgot the names of them they include in the book. And, and they come up with these new cocktails, these new persuasive ingredients. And it's almost, you know, the the sort of AI drug discovery, but it's almost like a taste discovery. Can we deliver brand new addictive tastes? And we're dealing with a finite stomach share. So one of the insights of the attention economy is you have a, a finite uh, pool that you have to draw from. You can't get more attention than there is out there. Um, and just like with stomach, the big, the big food uh, industry looks at the finite amount of stomachs that are out there and says, you're not only going to eat or drink so many calories per day, we can stretch that a little bit by getting everyone obese. And so we did that <laughs> um, successfully. But there is sort of limits and it becomes hyper competitive in a race to the bottom. The same thing is true for attention. Much like with food, by getting everyone obese, we can actually, uh, if we get everyone multitasking, paying attention to two or three things at once, or looking at your computer screen and your phone, or while you're listening to this podcast, maybe you're actually looking and reading a web page at the same time. By doing that, we have doubled or tripled the size of the attention economy. But again, you can't multitask uh, forever and and you know infinitely size uh, 
uh, grow the size of the attention economy, you're going to run out. And by doing so, you're also debasing the quality of attention that is inside of it. We're debasing the culture, the quality of presence we can give to each other. Or when you're reading the news article that you're reading right now while you're listening to this, uh, do you think that you're picking it up as well as if you weren't doing two things at once? So when we shallow out the attention economy, we are starting to frack for attention. And just like fracking debases the um, you know, otherwise regenerative capacity of, of the environment uh, and kind of degrades the, the capacity of the environment, um, that's what it's doing to our minds. And so that's why you know, we look at this as saying, if there was ever a thing to cause us to wake up to extractive economic logics where you have an infinite growth paradigm running on a finite substrate of human attention in this case, or in the case of the economy, a finite substrate of the environment and the regenerative capacity of the environment, this would be it. Because if I tell you about climate change or something like that, you can say, well, that's a problem that's 30 years away. It's going to take too long to get here. And I can convince myself it's only a problem my kids or grandkids are going to have to deal with. But suddenly when I can see that my finger is scrolling is the exact same extractive process. And now it's pointed at me. I'm the tree. I'm the whale. And I think that is what I, one thing I think resonated deeply with people about the social dilemma of film is, is showing how that economic logic is at the root of the same problems we're seeing in technology. I'm uh, really glad you mentioned race to the bottom because I was going to mention it if you didn't. You know, my good friend uh, Brett Weinstein talks about this all the time, how that if there's uh, multiple players in an industry, none of them can retreat from the bad behavior. Or if one of them innovates with bad behavior or, you know, you know bad for humans behavior, but it is efficacious economically, the others have to respond. And so there has to be an outside coordination uh, function that basically says, all right, people, we're all going to agree that high fructose corn syrup is not going to go in kids' drinks, right? Because otherwise, it's cheaper than cane sugar. So, of course, and indistinguishable by your average uh, nine-year-old. Uh, so, of course, they will, unless there's some external coordination. And uh, for now, the only real uh, external coordination we have is uh, regulation. Jim, this was actually um, important for me when I was starting to work on this in 2012, 2013. And I remember reading in the book Salt, Sugar, Fat that the industry actually did convene um, uh, all of the, the industry leaders together along with their food scientists and started giving presentations on the growth of diabetes and obesity uh, in the United States and then tried to get a game theoretic agreement. Could we basically restrict how much salt, sugar, and fat collectively as an industry? What are the limits we're going to put on high fructose corn syrup? They actually discussed these things. And then what happened is famously in the book, they couldn't get an agreement. At one point, a new CEO came into General Mills, um, I believe, I think her name is Betsy Morgan or something like this in 2004, and decided just, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm a mother. I'm going to put um, caps on the amount of salt, sugar, and fat in our foods. Um, they did that, and they did it, unfortunately, at a time when the rest of the industry was growing really fast. So they had to answer to Wall Street, and Wall Street said, why, is your, why are your sales not growing up as fast as the, uh, the rest of the industry? They fired the CEO, removed the limits, and went back to business as usual. And I think, Jim, this speaks to kind of where we are now, where uh, you and I have been talking the last couple of days about, given the events of January 6th and the massive deplatforming of, uh, you know, of, of Trump and, and, and many other accounts and the, the actions that platforms are now unilaterally taking to try to uh, stop uh, the sort of dangerous violence that, that might occur if, if, in their view, I think, if they don't do something. This is time for almost a constitutional convention for the digital world because we, we are now a digital society. And I, I've been using this metaphor recently that in the same way that when we hold a phone in our hands, I'm no longer just a human being. I'm actually a cyborg because my brain is augmented. My daily use of attention, my emotions, my anxiety are now pulled in this new... Um, system loop, this new reinforcement loop that involves my phone. My phone is now part of my mental sense-making and choice-making process. 
And everyone feels this when you, as you do, Jim, advocate for you know a day away or a weekend away or a week away from technology. You really feel that difference because you're kind of removing the cyborg-like quality from the way that our brains work. And we're surprised, I think, when we all do that, uh, just how different our brains feel. So we become cyborgs on an individual level. But what I want to argue is that we've actually become a cyborg democracy. We are no longer just a society or a culture that's dealing with media. We actually now have technology that has you know, been upstream from culture and screwing with the cultural feedback loops uh, in such a way that we, if we are a cyborg democracy and we have this brain implant in our in our society, that brain implant needs to be democratic. There's two ways to fail here. One is for tech platforms to have no articles of impeachment or just have lawlessness online. So you could have accounts that reach 20 million people who simply call for violence and then you don't do anything. That would be one way to fail is digital lawlessness and kind of the hyper-libertarian vision of everybody on their, on their own. The second way to fail is to have autocratic decision-making by two or three tech CEOs making a decision on behalf of everybody else and not asking them. And so we're failing in both counts right now. Censorship is neither a good solution, but neither is you know not doing anything when, when there's real violence that is uh, getting amplified in self-reinforcing feedback loops. So if there was ever a time for this kind of industry agreement and for that to be democratic and not just a private closed meeting between the tech companies, but some kind of open public democratic process that involves uh, legal scholars and sociologists and academics and um, multi-partisan or multi-political party representation, um, that's the time that we need that because we are witnessing the birth of kind of a digital a digital nation. And I think given the um, kind of similarities to people are drawing between January 6th and what people who I think we're in that and you know that that siege thinking of it as 1776 okay we are in certainly a constitutional crisis of some kind i think we need some kind of new digital constitutional convention uh to align ourselves uh in in the new 21st century uh, we had that conversation about a week ago and i've been thinking about it since i came up with uh, an analogy that i'd love to float and see what you think the analogy at least suggests we may not even need a constitutional convention uh, which is prior to about 1908 there was no traffic laws in the United States, uh, at least to speak of. There was some common law about, you know, if your horse caused somebody else, you ran over somebody with your horse, you were liable, et cetera. But there were no police. There were no traffic tickets. There were no uh, stoplights. Uh, roads had essentially grown up organically from trails, and uh, they may be government-owned. In many cases, they weren't. They were on common law right-of-ways across land uh, owned by other people. Uh, and there was uh, literally no regulation of road space until about 1908, when uh, in some of the uh, urban areas, I think it was actually some of the smaller urban areas that first started in the beginnings of rules, speed limits. The first speed limit was some, somewhere around 1908. Uh, and gradually, our democratic sphere uh, passed laws, regulations, uh, basically, now, of course, the uh, public highway is a very highly regulated place with you know, mandates for insurance, annual inspections, got to have your car not only mechanically inspected, but pollution inspected, uh, you know, the uh, manufacturing rules on a car, got to have seat belts, got to have uh, those uh, crash balloons, whatever the hell they call them. And I think most recent innovation is this year uh, that all cars have to have backup cameras. So uh, there's a, an, an interesting analog where you know, cyberspace, and uh, you know, as I said, been doing the cyberspace thing since the beginning. Prior to the advertising business model, uh, was not sufficiently either pernicious or large uh, that the world seemed to feel that it needed regulation. Just like the dirt 
roads slash trails of the 19th century in the United States, nobody even thought about regulating them because it didn't seem like it needed it. Uh, but once uh, automobiles showed up uh, at ever-increasing size, weight, speed, and, and noise, suddenly we realized that this was a domain that had to come under democratic supervision. Yep. And much like, you know, with the beginning of airplanes and we need an FAA to manage the air, you know, the aviation commons, we, we need something to manage, help us manage the attention commons and create the game theoretic standards and limits in not just our country, but in the world too. I think finance is an interesting place to look in terms of uh, regulation there, because that's a, a regulation framework in finance that crosses international borders. And one of the challenges we face here is that you have private companies mostly situated in the United States that let's say we just get a national agreement here in the U.S. to not do dopamine loops, uh, self-reinforcing personalization funnels, uh, rabbit holes, things like this. Well, TikTok or China, you know, some other next TikTok version that's coming out of China or UAE or Saudi Arabia will just not do those things. And so we need actually a kind of global um, paradigm for how we want this to work. Uh, that's what gets tricky about this is, you know, it <laughs> feels like it'll take forever to get kind of agreement globally. And then, of course, there's going to be regional differences in what norms people want. But I think we need to be able to establish some principles. Um, and, you know, it's not the first time, you know, we had airplanes coming out of uh, the U.S. Um, and I, I don't know the history of this, but I'm sure that, you know, we had to come up with some of the regulation and rules there and norms that we wanted to, to exist there here first. And then it would pass on to the rest of the world. Right now, we're just letting it all the whole thing run wild. And again, I think if the tech companies don't want this recent set of events and the total deplatforming of what people view as a, a power grab by the left to be seen as a political action, which I actually don't think, knowing the people in the tech industry that I do, that that's what's intended here at all. Uh, I think for them to prove that this is not something that's going to just further drive up you know, and escalate conflict and polarization, they have to turn this into a democratic process if we want this to be fair and democratic. And institutional power and inconsistently applied principles is equivalent to tyranny, right? That's what we say about cops that are, you know, inconsistently applying their enforcement, uh, discriminatory, uh, uh, you know, over-policing certain neighborhoods and others. That's that's a form of tyranny. But if we have Facebook or Amazon web hosting expressing institutional power and being inconsistent in how they're applying their principles, like deplatforming Trump for inciting violence, but not deplatforming, uh, you know, many other world leaders with similar levels of follower counts, uh, that's that's going to be a problem. So we need equal enforcement. We need an articles of impeachment for the digital world. We need an emergency broadcasting system. Uh, you know, you can imagine essential information uh, for health being kind of an emergency broadcasting system when you have a pandemic. We have that for television. We don't have that for the online world. We need um, a kind of uh, uh, preemptive penalties uh, so that we can sort of disincentivize people from even contributing things to the attention commons because they know that the penalty will be worse than having contributed it at all. Um, the example there is if something that you share is later found out to be completely debunked, uh, imagine that uh, we tell you that the fact cor check correction will be spread to three times as many people as who originally saw your uh, falsely spread uh, information. Uh, and that will disincentivize you from from feeling like you want to share things that you haven't confirmed yourself. So there's things like this that there's a whole long list of them that we would want to put on the agenda of a constitutional convention uh, to help manage the attention comments. And I think, like you said, we've done this before. We always start with a period of lawlessness and confusion and car crashes or horse and <laughs> horse and carriage crashes, uh, and then we figure it out after the crash. And I think this time the cost is too high to not do that immediately. Yep, I agree. And I and people who know me know that I have been a 
let's keep the uh, internet out of the hands of government uh, kind of guy for a long time. In fact, I was a supporter of John Perry Barlow with his fam- uh, famous a Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. I think we were naive, however, at the time. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, I do think that going to the advertising-only business model coupled with machine learning uh, was something we just couldn't even have envisioned in 1991 or 92. And so from that point of view, and at that time, it seemed reasonable. At this point now, I'm with you. And I and I believe that people on both sides of the political spectrum should uh, join up. For instance, I find it quite surprising that a lot of progressives are cheering on these deplatformings. You know, obviously, the reason they're doing it is because it's supports our team. But normally, progressives would not be in favor of giving essentially unlimited power to like five oligarchs, you know, five of the richest people on earth uh, who have almost absolute control over these platform companies uh, are making these decisions. Would your typical uh, Bernie voter in principle want to give the power of virtual life and death uh, to five billionaires, all white males? I don't think so. And the people on the right are uh, concerned that at least at this moment, and I always remind everybody that the boot will change uh, feed at some point, uh, feel like they are the target of excess enforcement and they don't feel right about it either. So I think this is a great opportunity if we pop up to a higher level of abstraction and get away from today's scuffling. Uh, Both sides can agree that the time has come to extend the democratic rule of law. I think that's the important thing. For instance, one could easily imagine uh, saying that any uh, social media type platform that had, say, more than 5 million uh, uniques a month, uh, which is pretty small, but not tiny, you know, has an obligation of free speech, but with regulation. And there's a specific set of legal standards on uh, what the limits of free speech are and a definition of due process that all such providers must have. And that's something that we can reach. What's the right balance? That's what democracy is for. That's what deliberation is for. And it'll change over time. There'll be amendments to whatever law gets passed. And eventually, you know, the law of of 2021 will be superseded by the, uh, you know, the network constitution of 20 or network regulation of 2028. Uh, And so I'm ready to bite the bullet. As a former net libertarian, I think that the alternative of having a handful of oligarchs uh, have absolute power and the fact that they don't think about it, you know, they're just being driven by business necessity and ad hocery and nobody's thinking about this in a systematic democratic way. Time has come. You know, and I think Jack Dorsey actually acknowledged this in his, um, came out yesterday, I think, but his sort of saying, you know, was this correct, the correct decision for Twitter to make to deplatform Trump? He said, I don't think this is right for the world, but it was right for Twitter in the sense that he acknowledges this is not how decisions should be made. You know, we don't want every really big action to essentially be just a big emergency break, break the glass and pull the pull the big lever and take the most extreme, you know, opposite of surgical kind of action. But I think what that revealed is that these things have become Frankensteins, where the only actions that they can take uh, are essentially large, ambiguous, and kind of um, inspecific ones, because it just shows how messy the whole thing has become. I mean, their goal at Twitter, supposedly, is to help be the platform for healthy global conversations. Uh, and Jack, I think, added on to addendum and help humanity address its existential threats, because I think he's been uh, really actually mentally in the space that I think uh, uh, some of <laughs> some of us have, have been in uh, on, on that as well. Uh, and so I think, you know, these tech companies would actually agree that this is how it should work. I mean, even Mark Zuckerberg has said, I shouldn't be the one making these judgment calls on behalf of 2 billion people. 
Um, the problem, of course, is that they, if they don't make any choice, the self-driving car of their algorithms drives all of their societies off of a cliff. And so we have to do something. And I think if you also, one of the reasons I think this metaphor of the birth of a digital nation and this becoming a constitutional convention for the 21st century is we also have to update our fundamental way of regulating, the, the clock rate of regulating and governing what issues are going to arise from tech. Because you know we always take at the Center for Humane Technology the problem statement of E.O. Wilson that the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and accelerating godlike technology. And, and those three things operate on different clock rates. Our paleolithic emotions are baked. You know, negative emotions and hatred and fear and uncertainty are very powerful emotions, and they're not going to change. The best you can do is try to express them in the healthier ways or have better awareness of them, but they're not going to go away. You're trapped in the mind-body meat suit that's going to express the way it does. You know, medieval institutions of, it's funny because that's in reference to 18th century philosophy or, you know, 18th century uh, democratically decided processes for how we want to, you know, meet in, you know, Senate chambers and make decisions about huge um, complex systems. That's simply just not operating fast enough to deal with all the issues that we face. And then third is you have this accelerating godlike technology, and it's going to create more and more issues faster than we have the medieval institutions uh, to govern it. And so, you know, what happens when your steering wheel lags behind uh, the speed of you know the accelerator of your car, which goes faster and faster every year, you're going to get into a car crash. And so I think the reason we also need a digital constitutional convention is really to update to a 21st century paradigm uh, of governance. And the question is, what does that actually look like? But one of my favorite uh, things to talk about here is that currently the tech platforms have been defending themselves with 20th century ideas of philosophy and economics saying, you know, the user is in control. They're the one who chose to use our service. They can always switch to another service at any time. That's a kind of a classic economic rationale. But while they design their products using 20th century behavioral economics. So in other words, you know, they defend their decisions and against regulation with 20th century economics and choice making, but they actually design their products with 21st century beneath the brainstem kind of hacking of, of the human mind. And we can't have it both ways. So I think part of what we need here is a in this kind of 21st century uh, constitutional convention to really acknowledge we are a, a new kind of cyborg country democracy and a new kind of digital infrastructure uh, world is we also need a new language for what we know about the brain. We have to be able to make a distinction between uh, speech and cognition. Um, we have to stop talking about censorship and free speech as sort of these you know, unilateral black and white concepts. Uh, you know, in the same way that if you just don't censor, what you really have is not censorship, you have crazy making ship because you have a system that is automatically steering people uh, towards crazy town. So we really need new cons uh, philosophical concepts here to govern what we're really after. Because one of the things I think would be get wrong if we did the constitutional convention, uh, and we just talked about what laws we want, is we'd be governing the cancer, we'd be governing the fact that we have a cancer, a cultural cancer creating process of this perverse business model, what we also need to do is reverse the cancer. We, we've now put the collective psyche of our society for, you know, immersed in for 10 years in this cult factory that has, that I think we saw on display when you think epitome, you know, the epitome is the guy with the horns the, at the Capitol building. And now it's very visible that the, the you know, this is kind of the most visible representation of the YouTube trolls and comment threads have now taken over the Capitol, right? That's like, it feels like the direct analog of the internet now visibly expressed in the real world. So we also need to reverse this, this cultural cancer. And that's going to be the harder one. Frankly, I think 
we probably need a lot of national broadcasting and uh, promotion of uh, culty programming. I think the whole country and the whole world needs to see lots and lots of documentaries about people who were in different kinds of cults of many different kinds and how you didn't know at the time and how there's very smart people that you know who got caught up into it and how powerful groupthink is. But we need a kind of new literacy about how each of us are trapped inside of different self-reinforcing cults and, and filter bubbles. And if we don't have that literacy, I don't think we can get out of this. Yeah, that's certainly going to be hard. And, you know, again, I, we have to be honest and say that this is a phenomenon on both sides. This, you know, strange new woke phenomena has an awful lot of the same attributes of the MAGA crowd. It's a, you know, self-organizing uh, network tribe that has, it's very heterogeneous. It's got some extremists. It's got a lot of people who are much more reasonable. Uh, and unfortunately, the, uh, you know, 1% with a can of gas and a match can cause all kinds of problems. And when people assemble as a mob, the 1% could ignite the 5% who can ignite the 15%. So uh, this is not just, uh, you know, about January 6th. This phenomenon has, uh, is all over our society and there are echo uh, chambers and filter bubbles of all sorts. And if something isn't done about it, there's going to be a lot more of them. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I really worry about where this goes um, without dramatic intervention. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people, again, saw the social dilemma as being eerily predictive of things that we're seeing just now. And the whole point of the film is, is that we, we don't want the world to go this way. Like we can have the collective self-awareness to realize the train that we're on, that we are now 10 years into this mind warp process. I mean, it's really hard to get that, right? Like when we look at the other side, no matter which side you're on and you think you understand them, well, you don't see that you've been, you know, as Justin Rosenstein says in the film, you know, you look at the other side and you think to yourself, how can they be so stupid? I mean, aren't they seeing the same information that I'm seeing? And then he says in the film, that's because they're not seeing the same information that I'm seeing. you know. And, and it's just so deep. I mean, also just to steel man, another cynical point your, your listeners might be making right now, they might say, well, hold on a second. We've had partisan radio and, and partisan television, Fox News and MSNBC for a very long time. Isn't this just a new level of that? And the answer is partially yes. But I would also challenge listeners to think about where the editors of and curators of those radio and TV stations getting their news from. They're sitting on Twitter, which means that they're sitting inside of the self-reinforcing, you know, newsfeed out ranking algorithms that this one company is really uh, steering that influences largely the media uh, and journalism ecosystem. So we really do have this media ecology that in which social media and technology are upstream now from the ways that all of us, including how the media production complex uh, is broadcasting its information. I think we need even more literacy about this. I think people think that they understand it, but I don't think that the mechanics of how this drives up more conflict and polarization are, are truly understood. Yeah. And let's make a turn now back to the movie. That's a perfect uh, transition. Because while you could argue that MSNBC or Fox are, are polarizing engines of the previous cycle, uh, they're fundamentally different in that they don't have the feedback loop to self-tune to your own behavior. And in the film, you know, I thought one of the most wonderful pieces of it that you kept coming, you know, was a running theme. You had these three gremlins, I think were played by the same actor, uh, who represented the machine learning algorithms inside of a uh, social uh, media platform that sure looked to me a hell of a lot like Facebook, that were uh, constantly manipulating a teenage boy and based on his own behavior or even lack of behavior uh, and, you know, putting things in front of them sending him little uh, nudges, et cetera, to get him to do what? Uh, to be a, more available to consume advertising. And, you know, this, these gremlins were making these manipulations based on his own data specifically to manipulate him. 
which is something that either neither Fox News or MSNBC is capable of doing. Uh, maybe you can take that idea a little bit further and you know give, give a little bit more detail on how these uh, mega machine learning algorithms are now in play against ourselves. Yeah, well, I love that you're bringing this up and and um, in the film for those who haven't seen it, but hopefully you you will take a look at the film. Um, there's these three different AIs, artificial intelligence agents. One is called the growth AI, and the that AI's job is to figure out how can I increase uh, growth and get you to invite other people to use the service? How can I get you tagging other people in photos and comments and posts because that gets them to come back? So that's the growth AI. And they're calculating and trying to predict what would cause you to do things that would grow use of the service. Um, an example of that in practice at Facebook is when you uh, join Facebook early on in the right-hand sidebar, it'll say, here's other friends you should add to be your friend. And they can actually strategically recommend people who, for example, may not have used the service in a while so that they're actually recommending people who will then end up resurrecting those dormant accounts, uh, that that makes sense. So that's there's a predictive and manipulative purpose there in the growth AI. The second AI is what's called the engagement AI. And this is the AI that's trying to predict what will keep you on there longer. Which video could I show you next? If you're, as he is in the film, a skateboarding addict, can I show you, you know, epic fails of skateboarding um, and have that be the thing that gets you? Or if you're, you know, looks like you're headed to an event called the January 6th insurrection, maybe you might like these, um, these posts about guns and, um, you know, th- these inspiring videos of storming other capitals and history examples of that. That'll work for you. That'll increase engagement time, which actually, ironically, the film covers these kinds of um, gun-based kind of examples uh, in, in a strange way, which which wasn't so predictive of what's happening now. And then the third example of the AI is the advertising AI. And that AI is trying to predict what is the advertising that will be most successful uh, at basically getting you to buy things, right? And so to make that example real, on January 6th, as I mentioned earlier, Facebook was found to have advertised a t-shirt saying, give violence a chance, and also military gear, uh, tactical military gear, to, to people who are in the groups that went to the January 6th event, because those were the ads that would have been most successful, again, according to the AI's predictions, because it doesn't know what's good. The algorithms are amoral. They just know what works. That, let, me, let me break in here a little bit. You know, AI being my field, one of my fields, uh, that's the point I really want to make, is that those machine learning algorithms didn't know anything about guns or violence or January 6th. Uh, today's machine learning algorithms, not necessarily what we'll have to confront in the future, which is even scarier, they're basically really, really fancy and really, really good uh, statistical engines that look at correlations, right? Uh, they have no idea that the ads are about guns. They just know that ads of this sort with these kinds of words in them, and even sometimes with these kinds of uh kinds of sound, deep male voices versus high-pitched female voices, work on people that have the following attributes and the following behavioral profiles and are, are like other people who these ads are run with. So these, uh, you know, when people say, oh my God, how could, how could Facebook allow that to happen? The truth is these machines are black boxes, which are opaque. You have no idea what's going on inside and don't deal with semantics at all, merely statistics. Really, Facebook has no obvious way uh, to stop something like that from happening when when they let these machine learning algorithms loose. That's exactly right. And and I think um, what people need to get about this, uh, there is a reason why we say the business model is the problem. So when I say that phrase, the business model is the problem, many people might be thinking, oh, he's saying the advertisements are the problem because isn't the business model advertising? 
But no, it's that the reason why Facebook doesn't know the difference between guns versus something else that might be violence inciting a niche language in India, because keep in mind, there's 22 languages in India, I believe. And uh, how many engineers at Facebook do you think, or how many AI classifiers did they build to detect violence inciting speech in those 22 different languages? And think about all the different countries that Facebook operates in, all the different sub-languages they have to then uh, know about, and all the different sort of dog whistles and symbols and, and terminology for things that might be violence inciting. Do you think that they have human judgment, human moderators, human editors that are looking at, just like we have with television or radio with the five second delay and bleeping out things that we know to be the handful of short words that we, we don't want going over airwaves to maybe children or something like that. We don't have that for the hundreds of languages and hundreds of countries that um, the any of these companies, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, are reaching. And so it's an information theory problem. The scale and dimensionality of possible risk and harm is greater than the scale and dimensionality of safety uh, enforcement. So you can think of it, I think of it like, you know, if you have a plane and you have, let's say, 60 passenger seats on the plane, you probably would want to have 60 uh, parachutes or life vests in case that plane crashes, right? But if you had a plane that only had two life vests or two parachutes with, for 60 people, you have created a system in which the capacity for harm and risk is far greater than the capacity for safety that you've engineered into the system. The reason, again, for this is that the business model profits by having automated machines look at content as opposed to paying human editors and human judgment, because that's very expensive. And so really the, the dilemma that we're stuck in is that the business model depends on it being some kind of unconscious Frankenstein, because we can't afford to be as conscious as we need to of the possible harm that can emerge from the system. And there's also, I made the note while you were talking about the same kind of theme earlier, that there's some exogenous uh, things that have happened that weren't Facebook's doing or Twitter's doing or TikTok's doing. And that is, again, Moore's Law marching along. Basically, communications is essentially free now. The cost for Facebook to have you make a post and put it on their server, I don't know what it costs, but it's got to be some tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a cent. Not that long ago, it was pretty expensive, just the computation, the network, and the disk. And so the fact that communications has essentially become free, so the demand side, all restraint is off the demand side. Uh, unfortunately, as you pointed out earlier, our human attention is not significantly greater uh, than it was, and frankly, to the degree that it is greater than it than it was uh, 10 years ago, that's probably a bad thing because it means we're being forced into a less productive uh, multitasking. And then you add together the fact of the network effect that if you have the most users, you win from a business perspective. So every and, the, and you hold them on longer as possible. Uh, all the players in the platform game are forced into encouraging unlimited communications into a domain with limited attention. That's right. And if one platform says, let's say Twitter tomorrow created a rule that you're only allowed to post once per day, which is how we can better, or they even introduce congestion pricing. So based on the amount of intensity of everyone else posting, it became more expensive, not in terms of money necessarily, but let's say, I don't know, some kind of scarcity credit for our ability to contribute to the attention commons and maybe the price for being wrong or being for sharing something later turned out to be false or more of an assertion or something like that. The cost to being wrong goes up so that we try to we have some congestion pricing mechanism. Well, that platform that introduces that isn't going to do as well as platforms that don't introduce those kinds of scarcity limits because the ones that don't are the ones where people can post more often, share more salacious stuff. And that's why, you know, as we say in our podcast, Your Undivided Attention, we interviewed many different experts on this topic, and we have one called The Bully's Pulpit, interviewing Fadi Karan from Avaz, who really studies how uh, this, the business model favors bullies, those who essentially um, use the platform 
in um, to say the most extreme things about minority groups uh, and to um, uh, say them as often and as powerfully as possible. I mean, think about the number of times per day that Trump tweeted, um, you know, the election is rigged, the election is stolen, the election is rigged. Well, if you had only one, imagine that the scale of audience that you reached uh, dictated how often you could communicate or what the sort of responsibility you would have for, for communication. And the fact that you can simply just without any cost, uh, you know, tweet 30 times a day, 50 times a day. And if you already have 10 million followers or 100 million followers or whatever he had, um, suddenly the real problem here is we've decoupled the level of power that an agent has to influence the psychological commons from the responsibility or possible harm that they could have. And, you know, to borrow another line from Daniel Schmachtenberger slash Barbara Marks Hubbard, where I think he got this line from, uh, you cannot have the power of gods without the wisdom, love, and prudence of gods. You know, if you if you have the power of Zeus, but in a sort of psychological capacity to sort of, you know, lightning bolt half the, you know, the communication commons and the psychological commons, and you bump your elbow, you don't know what you're saying, you're, you're causing an exponential set of consequences psychologically for others without having the consciousness of what that might do. And so what I really worry about here is we've scaled up the sort of godlike Zeus-like powers of psychological impact to each of us uh, and in dangerous ways without giving us the capacity to know what kind of harm will cause. And, you know, one other simpler and subtler example of this is one of the failure modes of social media is context collapse, that you'll say one thing in one context that feels resonant and true, and it will be heard by, because you're broadcasting to exponential numbers of people, it'll be heard by people for whom it is not true or it resonates very differently. So I think, you know, when the left says that it's all about race or we have to make sure we, we prioritize people of color, those who are poor white people who, who live in um, you know, the, the most rural areas and are economically suffering, they hear that as that's, you know, well, why would we prioritize that? And so again, the context collapse of uh, what would be a good faith truth in one context, but is not true for other contexts. Uh, that's what leads to more conflict because those other people, those poor whites will then respond with more aggression, more hatred. And in a subtle fractal way, this is happening everywhere where everything that you say gets misheard and mischaracterized by other people. And then it drives up more conflict and escalation. And I, I think until we recognize the cycle of that system of how context collapse produces conflict escalation, it's not going to look good, right? I think, and, and again, this is where I think a constitutional convention and even some kind of truth and reconciliation for this warping effect that technologies had on our collective ability to cohere, uh, we, we've got to actually reckon with what's happened. And it's much deeper than I think people tend to see. And it's interesting when you talk about that, this context collapse. Uh, again, and back in the day, the CompuServe's and the AOL's and the sources, uh, most of this stuff was in what you'd now call groups on Facebook, say, uh, where people were talking about things together and there wasn't a hell of a lot of overlap. You know, the Packard car people uh, weren't arguing with the Cadillac antique car people, right? Uh, but when you added the social dimension that there's this undefined open space that doesn't belong to any group uh, and take it to Twitter or take it to an even further extreme. At least Facebook has you know limits on how many friends you can have and uh, you have to be a real person, et cetera. Tw you know, Twitter's the ragged edge of craziness where there's no concept of groups. Everything is in this uh, highly fluid, ill-defined space. You can have as many followers as you want. Uh, and, uh, you know, no wonder that if we overlap uh, natural human variation on in, in a high dimensional space, of course, you're going to have conflict constantly. That's essentially what's been engineered to Twitter for sure and Facebook to only a little bit lesser degree. Totally. I, you know, you're making me think of something totally different I've never thought of before. But um, 
one of the things that causes people to react with such negativity is just the, you know, when you're low ego debt, you know, this sort of debt rate, ego debt ratios where positive to negative feedback, like what's the ratio of positive feedback we get to negative feedback we get. And with social media, A, we get lots and lots of negative feedback um, because that's what makes it easy for people to not just say negative things, but then have other people pile on or say, I like that. And then you see people who you thought were friends um, piling on to negative things. And we all get, we all come from such a shrunk place, right? We, we feel really hurt and small because we we tend to also, um, on top of what I just said, we tend to, our minds tend to loop on and remember negative things that are said about us, right? Jim, if I, if you posted a photo and you got 99 positive comments and one negative comment, where does your attention go? <laughs> I mean, your, your brain has seen 99 to one evidence of positivity, but your brain tends to focus on the negative because that's what's evolutionarily useful. Now you imagine teenagers under that dynamic and we just feel constantly, um, you know, like there's a, there's a lot at stake and we have to lash out. And so that's what I think is causing some of this this negativity to emerge when, when hate kind of becomes a habit. And then we all start getting into that habit together. And I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but the thought came to my mind, you know, what if there was this practice where you log into social media and the first thing it asked you before you participate into Twitter and what you want to post is it said, who are three people who are you're grateful for, who you just want to send some vibes for? Like, who are you really would you want to just sort of celebrate or feel grateful for? And imagine you woke up and everybody, you did that action. You were saying something to someone else that uh, was positive and praising them. But then also you had suddenly a lot of people praising you, right? Um, and uh, because eventually I think our turns would all come around. And, and just that simple change, examples like that are about understanding the kind of, you know, starting with an understanding of human frailties and, and psychological weaknesses and trying to design around it in a positive way. And that mirrors other forms of human wisdom where, you know, gratitude practices are one of the simplest things that people can do. And you start your day, open a journal and make a list of things that you're grateful for, or just meditate on that. And it's a very powerful, um, you know, simple thing that we can do. And I, I'm bringing this up as an example of when we at the Center for Humane Technology talk about humane technology and what that looks like. Um, the word humane in our work comes from my co-founder, Aza Raskin's father, Jeff Raskin, who is the father of the Macintosh project at Apple. And he said that an interface is humane if it is considerate of human needs and respectful of human frailties. Because the whole point is you have to actually understand human frailties. You have to design around them to make them work for us. And so, you know, in general, human wisdom, like a gratitude practice or a meditation, tends to be based on a core insight about something that our mind or brain doesn't do automatically, but actually would really help once you understand that frailty. I'll give you a second example is uh, the serenity prayer. What is it? God, give me the wisdom to acknowledge the things that I can't change, um, uh, know, know the things that I can and have the wisdom to tell the difference. Well, that's because our brains are agency blind, meaning our attention uh, is decoupled from what we have agency on. Now, um, if you think about, um, you know, in the savannah, everything you could point your attention to, that rock over there, that lion over there, you had some agency over. You could run away from that lion. You could throw, you know, you could grab that rock. You could do something with it. So what we put our attention on is coupled with what we have agency uh, with, right? But when you go into the modernity, uh, into modernity and you go into social media, our attention, what we put our attention on, especially these big societal problems, is completely decoupled from uh, our agency. And so knowing this about ourselves, the serenity prayer uh, is, is sort of a humane technology in the form of, uh, something we can just remind ourselves of to be able to recognize that which we cannot change or make a difference uh, on and that which we can. And imagine if humane technology would help point our attention at the things that we actually can change 
And that's a, there's a positive feedback loop there, a virtuous cycle, where the more we start taking actions around the things that we can change and we see that life gets better in the local environments, whether that's in our own lives, like little habits or practices that we pick up uh, at the start of a new year, or um, you know, in, in the form of changing our communities. Because we instead of complaining about climate change and feeling c- completely overwhelmed by it, we actually really focus on passing one law in our uh, local county or our local state. Um, and that makes you feel um, higher agency. And I just want to give this as an example because I don't want people to be burned out by all of the negativity of all the problems we have with social media. I think we need a positive vision for what humane technology can look like. And in our work, it's based on starting with insights about human frailties. Yeah, I love it. And you know, and I would add, and you mentioned uh, early on, uh, that I'm a great believer in personal practice to manage these things, just in the same way, you know, we manage our alcohol consumption and our, you know, I dearly love potato chips, but I also have a weight problem. So I don't sit down and eat a bag of potato chips every day, even though I'd probably like to. Uh, I don't drink every day, right? I have limits to how much I drink most of the time, right? Uh, we should encourage people. And uh, frankly, my father gave me a good list of rules for, uh, you know, not running into problems with alcohol. There was a fair number of alcohol in his family. He was not one of them, fortunately, uh, but he had seen it enough at close hand to be able to you know, say, never, never, never drink to offset a hangover. Never drink before noon, right? You know, uh, uh, he had a whole list of these things. And, you know, why can't we have those kind of same kinds of practices? You know, as you know, Tristan, I, uh, I personally take a big, I take a leave from social media six months a year. I've been uh, doing it on the well for 15 years, which was my first real intense online community. Uh, I've been doing it on Facebook for four years, six months a year from uh, July through January 1st, no Facebook. Uh, and this year I threw Twitter in too, because I developed a little bit of a Twitter Jones with the launch of my podcast. I really hadn't done much Twitter until I started doing the podcast, but you sort of have to do Twitter if you're a podcaster. And so I just say six months a year, I ain't doing that shit, right? Now that may be more than most people uh, are capable of doing or want to do, but it works for me. Uh, the other thing I do, which I did not do, interestingly, while I was on my social media uh, sabbatical, was uh, I will often do cyber-free Sundays, where I'll just not touch any cyber device except a Kindle. Uh, you know, just like a good uh, Talmudic Jew, I'll think through the rules and how do I play the game, but and I'll say no technology except the Kindle, which is, to my mind, more like a book uh, than it is like a like a technological device. Uh, and I, I kind of waffle on whether I'll use voice telephony on my uh, cell phone or whether I'll just use the house phone. Uh, but, uh, but otherwise, no tech, one day a week. And in the same way, we all have our family rules, you know, soft rules, recommendations on how to deal with alcohol and junk food and gambling and smoking and all these sorts of things. There's no reason we can't have us develop family and community and maybe even religion-based conventions on how to modulate our use and borderline abuse of these technologies. Yeah, completely. And I, I think that, you know, wisdom traditions in general give us different forms of practices. I mean, it's interesting that so many religions include a Sabbath or some kind of day of rest in you know how they construct their religion, and it says something that's probably more universal about what would be helpful for us. I think this is also where people like Jordan Peterson are kind of harvesting, um, saying, "Hey, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater." In you know maybe these religions were wrong, but um, there's core moral archetypes or core moral 
you know, ways of being or practices. I mean, even what is his famous recommendation of make your bed, right? Like just this simple act of kind of keeping your own internal house in order and taking responsibility versus not taking responsibility. These are very tiny, simple things, but uh, generally speaking, uh, different wisdom traditions tend to emphasize very similar things because they're based on insights about how to work well with our intrinsic uh, physiology. I'd love to give just a couple more examples. One other thing on what you're sharing though is you know, what would be inhumane is to force or to put the burden of responsibility about a systemic problem onto individual behavioral practices. Um, and I think I want to name it sort of a both end here where, of course, you know, if each of us can buy a Tesla or double pane our windows or do the things that we can for climate change, that's fine. But when BP says, here's a carbon calculator so you can calculate your own footprint, when they promote individual behavioral practice, to a systemic problem where we know the top 100 companies make up uh, as businesses 78% of, of our climate problem, um, as the Guardian said, I think a couple of years ago, uh, we have to make sure we're actually changing the system systemically as well as individually. So what I hear you saying, Jim, is on the one hand, obviously, let's figure out cultural practices that allow us, whether it's gratitude or uh, Sabbath or some pretty basic things like serenity prayer that we want to to help us. But let's also make sure we change it at a systemic level. And I think, again, to change it as a, as a systemic level, we have to identify what in the system incentivizes a paving over of human frailties or weaknesses. And I wanted to give a couple more examples of where something has gone wrong. So another one is heightened polarization occurs due to frailties in the mind in terms of frame control, that your mind has this thing called mutual inhibition. George Lakoff describes this really eloquently, that when you see things in terms of one cognitive frame, it suppresses the other interpretation of that frame. And then political polarization is based on playing on that. An example is the same words can have multiple meanings. So defund the police can be perceived to mean completely abolish the police on one side, and defund the police can be otherwise perceived as a conscious political strategy to reallocate funding for community safety on the other. And so when we get into arguments we're actually often referring to the same symbols, but actually different frames of reference for what people are believing about that thing. So Black Lives Matter, some people have in their mind images of the completely unjust moment with uh, George Floyd. And that's what Black Lives Matter and and the protests over the summer uh, refer to for people. And so that's what they're holding in their mind. And then the other people who are seeing Black Lives Matter in a negative way are holding a completely different set of representations of their mind of people tearing down statues of people who weren't slaveholders or, you know, um, uh, crazy fires and riots and, you know, turning down, uh, destroying black owned businesses and, and things like this. And again, if we don't recognize that we are inside of different frames, different groundings for the things that we're referring to, and we get into arguments about those different realities without recognizing the fact that our minds are tuned to different things, we're going to simply get into more conflict. As you can imagine, humane technology helping us identify these multi-meaning frames and actually um, helping us pause before we talk about them and sort of naming that. I don't know if you've seen, Jim, uh, there's another example of this that I saw during the middle of those protests, uh, this four-dimensional Venn diagram with the four circles, and it says you can be here in the middle. So for example, one of them is uh, George Floyd's death and murder was murder, and the cops should, responsible should be in jail. Uh, the second is the police system is structurally corrupt and regularly refuses to prosecute cops. Uh, the third is looting and burning businesses is immoral and counterproductive, and those people who do it should go to jail. And then uh, the fourth one is mass protests and civic disruptions are legitimate and warranted actions. And the whole point is to be able to make these nuanced points, you have to actually almost specifically outline the kind of edges of where you're standing. Because if you just say, yeah, it's okay for these protests to happen, while not also saying 
looting and burning businesses is immoral and counterproductive, uh, people will hear you using one frame and not hear the other. And this kind of gets to the context collapse issue we're talking about. But I think if we don't know about our own minds, that we are perceiving different things when we argue with each other, then we're not even getting into an argument about the same thing. And I think that so much of what's going wrong in culture and our social media you know, conflict escalation machine is due to dynamics like this. I love that. I use that example. In fact, uh, it's been amazing. Have, I've been having an online discussion today about comparing Black Lives Matter and the uh, uh, MAGA crowd, both as self-organizing network tribes. And then immediately people say, how can you compare these two? Blah, 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 blah. I go, wait a minute. I'm talking to about them as a class of entity. And we're looking at a much higher dimensional analysis than deciding who's right and who's wrong. For this purpose's analysis, it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. They have attributes. They're similar in some ways. They're different in others. And uh, we want to understand the phenomena, the class of self-organizing network tribes. And it was quite interesting. And I, uh, the rhetoric I used there was saying, what you have to do is to look through a high dimensional lens. You can't just look through a one dimensional lens, you know, my enemy, my friend. Rather, you know, let's try to frame this intellectual concept of a self organizing network tribe. And what are the attributes that they have in common? How do they differ? But it was quite, I mean, some of these people were amazingly vehement that somehow it was a, uh, some horrible infraction to even attempt to do this analysis, right? And and it was clear to me that it was a failure of dimensionality of lens, uh, fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining even, um, you know, I, I would consider steel manning someone's argument as a humane technology because it's a way of pre-understanding human frailties on both sides, human frailties of misunderstanding. And starting with, let me actually make your point that I think you're trying to say stronger than you would have said it yourself. This is Rappaport's rules of uh, persuasion and, and conversation, I think, as well, it, it, because that's that's how we get to somewhere, and I can we can show that we're actually trying to get somewhere new. And again, that the negative perception of that is by steelmanning an argument that people think is illegitimate. Um, for example, even giving credence to people who are against Black Lives Matter, people on the left would come after you for saying, "Well, how could you even do that?" Right? And so we have to also, you know, if you think about, I think Daniel Schmachtenberger mentions this: that the three kinds of education that we need. Uh, Aristotelian about virtue ethics and philosophy, Socratic education, which is for argumentation and logic, and then Stoic education, which is education about how to wrangle with our own emotions. And I feel like we've lost our Stoic education because we are letting our own emotions so quickly jump to conflict before actually really trying to understand each other. Um, and again, social media isn't making this easy because I think you know short strands of text are just pre-built in for conflict. I I would want people to think about Twitter as just a conflict-driven medium when you can only communicate something in a flat, you know, perspective. I think we would do better to um, send videos around that that contain the full nuance of our perspectives and when we hit record, it would remind us to actually say and steel man the other perspectives we're trying to talk about and incorporate so that we don't accidentally fall into context collapse. And again, that's the kind of humane technology approach is starting with the understanding of the frailties of how we misinterpret information when it's taken out of context, it would encourage us to communicate in ways that would address context collapse uh, up front. Um, a good other good example of that, by the way, uh, I don't know if you've seen that the Guardian newspaper adds a yellow label to older articles saying this article is seven months old to prevent resharing of things that are old or under false context. And it does that both, I think, in the uh, article itself on the Guardian website. But then I think when you share the article to Facebook, it includes in that header photo, it'll put a little yellow bar uh, in the photo itself saying this article is seven months old. And that's, again, about helping us built into the system uh, augment our contextual understanding appropriately. 
uh, versus getting confused about when something occurred. And you see this all the time, even smart people, Jim, that you and I know and the Game B group or something, you know, they'll post these things. Oh, I've done it. Oh, I've done it. Posted an old an old article accidentally, right? Yeah. And we've all done it. And the, and the point is, again, you know, you're a really smart guy. You were on the board of SFI. I respect you a lot. And, I, you know, we are, we are all in this very smart community, but it doesn't change the fact that our human weaknesses are a different dimension of how we work. And, and this is what I learned from magic as a magician. It's not about, you know, whether your audience member or spectator has a PhD, if they're a nuclear engineer or built 747s and you say, oh, I can't do this magic trick because you're too smart. You know how to build 747s. The whole point is there's weaknesses in our minds that very few people know about their, themselves. And those weaknesses where they are universal are where we need to point our attention for the broader reform of technology. Absolutely. And I, it was a point I was uh, looking for a time to bring it in. I'll bring it in now because it's perfect, uh, which is one very well-known, very powerful, and very pernicious cognitive uh, flaw. Uh, confirmation bias is actually positively correlated with uh, education. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to rule out evidence that contradicts uh, your current holdings, which is kind of interesting. You know, people say, oh, we need a better educated America. Well, actually, if you want confirmation bias to go up, then give people more of the current kind of inform- education we have now. At, per Daniel Schmachtenberger and my friend Zach Stein, there are other kinds of education uh, that we could be doing that would help people uh, avoid confirmation bias as they were better educated. But today's educational system actually increases confirmation bias, amazingly enough. Yeah, it completely. And I, you know, one of the other aspects of um, intelligence is the smarter you are, the smarter you can justify um, anything, right? And your, 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 your self-justifications for your belief system get so complex and so um, self-reinforcing, um, and it's harder for others to poke a hole in it because you have such elaborate brilliant ideas that others find it harder and harder to kind of poke into it. And again, I think what we really need is a self-critical or humble, you've said this before, epistemic humility, right? We we need to operate with the culture of humility and learning and growth. Uh, to do that, we also need, again, to increase that feedback ratio so that we're not all operating from such ego debt. I think social media produces this feeling of constantly feeling attacked or even the future likelihood of attack that we all get very defensive at first, right? Especially in public environments where you're attacked for having some view. It's not like you're immediately going to abandon that view. In fact, I think there's studies on how if you make a public apology for a mistake, it actually net-net causes worse damage because people are not forgiving online. Uh, There's a great article uh, by someone in the humane technology community named Nick Punt, who I think is at the Stanford Business School. He wrote a a really great article about um, what would Twitter be looked like if it was designed for forgiveness and, and mistakes. And so imagine there's an I made a mistake button uh, and and there's a way in which we can actually clap or, or um, positively reinforce when we make mistakes. And again, he goes through an analysis of why it probably won't work and here's all the kind of pros and cons, but I think that's the kind of exercise that we need to go through. I mean, we don't even realize that we, we've never had a national public square before. There's you know, People talk about digital technologies as the new public square. We've never had a global uh, public square, not even national, a global public square. Um, where everyone and millions of people are paying attention to you at once. And do you think it's easy to you know, be humble or say, I changed my mind or I made a mistake to millions of people and that everyone in a decentralized capacity is, is going to you know, uh, uh, do that? It's very, very rare. Um, and again, I think we need systemic support for that, not just uh, some kind of personal responsibility where a handful of people conjure the will to simply say, yeah, you know, I was really wrong about this and I want to let the world know. Um, so these are examples, I think, as well. Yeah, I like them. They're very good. Uh, we're getting uh, late here in our time. I'm going to have to wrap up here in a few minutes. I would suggest for as the last thing we do, uh, these are some things you and I have talked about over the months. 
kind of my style. I kind of look for brute force, simple, powerful moves that might fix problems. And amazingly, in the business world, that was often a good idea. Uh, it may not be as good of an idea in the political space. And I will acknowledge before I go down this list of possible reforms that this real move to a, a constitutional convention and the democratic rule of law in cyberspace is going to be a long process and probably going to be a lot more nuanced uh, than these ideas. But I'm going to throw out uh, three ideas for you that are, I will admit, upfront, brute force, but uh, I believe would get close to the root of some of these problems. Uh, you ready to give your critique on them? We'll, we'll give it a shot. Let's go. All right. You know, you've heard this one from me before. Well, what would happen if we just banned advertising? Period. Right? The, uh, the tech world existed before advertising, and it was actually great. We loved, I loved at least, most of the products that I, uh, you know, came to use. They weren't trying to steal my attention. They weren't trying to sell me something. Just try to use one of these new games on your phone. The goddamn thing. Blah, 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 attention. Try this. Play this. Blah, blah. You know, what happens if we just flat banned advertising from technological platforms? It would be crazy, uh, but it might be great. What do you think about that? I think this is... It's a question of um, you can only have the ethics or moral operating system you can afford to have. So I think from a moral perspective and a kind of cleaning up the environment perspective, this is absolutely where we would love to be, right? I mean, you and I talked when we had this conversation before about you know, go back to the 1980s and 1990s. I want to be very clear that I personally am not anti-technology at all. In fact, I grew up thinking, you know, the Macintosh and, you know, all the creative applications that were on it back in the early 90s when I was growing up. Um, was a um, you know a wonderful creative expressive place. I mean, remember what it felt like to add VisiCalc to your to your Apple II, or to add uh, you know Photoshop or HyperCard or these creative applications or uh, you know Final Cut Pro. We, we were making things right, and each time technology uh, software you downloaded, you, you added to your computer or you put in that CD-ROM, you were adding a new capacity that would help you. And there was nothing about Final Cut Pro or Photoshop that said when you painted a, a brushstroke on your on your canvas, it didn't notify six friends saying, hey, Jim Rutt posted a, a brushstroke on his canvas. Do you want to see it? Or do you want to comment on it? Like we've gotten into this totally bizarre uh, new normal that is completely not normal and we shouldn't treat it as such that is based on, again, using each of our actions as social candy to lure others back into seeing it and, and to use this virality model to keep us distracted because of the fact that attention is a commodity. Uh, and you know, one of the articles I wrote recently was at MIT Tech Review, and I referenced E.O. Wilson saying you know, his solution for climate change and the climate crisis is just uh, making sure we keep half of Earth to just be hands-off, just no extraction, just let it go. And you can think similarly of the attention economy. We shouldn't have attention be a commodity that should be atomized and for sale. And I use this metaphor of when we do do that, we're essentially saying, you know, in the same way that a tree can be turned into dim timber, well, human beings can be turned into dead slabs of predictable behavior. It's like the deadening of human choice making. If there is such a thing as free will, and I think we're all skeptical of the dimensionality of what that is to the extent it exists or doesn't, but for sure, when you have AI pointed at our brains trying to predict our next move and winning more and more times, it's essentially deadening, turning into dead slabs of human consciousness uh, our choice making at a collective level. And that's what you can think about. I do when I look at, you know, people on subways and, you know, all around the world getting caught in these loops of uh, scrolling through their phones forever and turning into zombies. Uh, it's that deadening of human choice making. And that society, that zombie society cannot solve climate change, cannot deal with racial inequality, cannot deal with economic inequality. It does not work. And so I, I do think that solutions as aggressive as just banning advertising and banning the commodification 
of attention, maybe above a certain threshold, like E.O. Wilson's half earth or half consciousness, sort of half human mind solution, uh, is in the direction of how we need to think about the change that's needed. Yeah, it's a big one, but I and people always recoil when I say it, and they go, "How could we do that?" And I said, "We used to do it until 2005." The second one, again, very aggressive. We talked earlier about addiction, and there was some very dramatic scenes in the film about the person that put their phone in the uh, little cookie safe with the timer on it, and then so that they could uh, not use their phone. Then they come down in the middle of the night and break it with a hammer. I go, "Holy moly!" You know, I'm. Uh, I don't think I've ever been addicted to anything that bad, but clearly there are people like that. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, when Facebook was first a thing, 2011, 2012, there were a bunch of these surveys. What would you give up to keep Facebook? And it'd be like, I'd become a vegan before I would give up Facebook. It was like, ah, what? Uh, so just like alcohol, 10% of people are addicted to alcohol. Probably more than 10% of people are addicted to uh, social media, it may be as high as the 40 per 50% of people who become addicted to cigarettes uh, if they smoke. So what about being real extreme and dealing with uh, social media in the same way we deal with cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, and restrict social media to only people over 21? I think, listen, there's there's particularly pernicious design techniques that that you know, manipulate young people. It, you know, when I read Salt, Sugar, Fat, the book I mentioned earlier, they talk about how, you know, all human beings respond to sugar, um, but kids actually respond at twice the rate to sugar than adults do. And for that reason, we have to be ultra sensitive to the ways that sugar can kind of hijack uh, children. Um, and we do do things like that. I mean, we ban, for example, as you said, uh, Joe Camel and, and cartoon depictions of uh, cigarettes that are marketed explicitly to children because we know that's a manipulative form of advertising. We don't allow it. And coincidentally, by the way, we used to ban URLs, uh, any kind of web address in an advertisement to children on television. The former FCC commissioner uh, mentioned this to me. Um, and, and we don't do that now. We, when, when we took YouTube and it gobbled up the sort of uh, norms and standards for children's broadcasting, it removed all of the children's protections in advertising. So I think we should absolutely look at uh, these kinds of extreme actions that, you know, I think of it from a, from a principled perspective. It's not like, a, oh, you know, the kids these days are a moral panic about children. We've always had moral panics about children. I want to be very clear about how to be aware of all of them when we make uh, aggressive actions like this. If we want to go at this from a principled perspective, we want to make sure that the level of power or the level of influence that is that is occurring is commensurate to the level of self-awareness or consciousness that you would need to wield that power. You know, I always say, if you go to a kitchen store, you can buy a pair of knives. You don't have to get a background check or get training about using kitchen knives because the level of harm you can cause is very minimal and it doesn't overpower you or cause you to go crazy or something like that. But if you're going to go buy a gun, there's got to be a background check and some training, hopefully, and there's a bigger power. And if you want AK-47s, you want ICBMs, as we scale the power, we have to scale the responsibility, training, and awareness about what you could do if you wield that weapon or power in irresponsible ways. When you think about children, what you have is a very uh, early developmental consciousness that may not be aware of you know, what the costs are of posting something without recognizing who, how many people will see it and what that could cause downstream. And that's actually a lot of the issues when we talk about um, cancel culture for kids or bullying or uh, the kind of anxiety that kids face. It's that they post something and they don't know that by the time they get home, if their reputation will be destroyed by all their classmates and the entire school has seen it because it's spread, you know, not just to the kids, but to the parents and to the school administrators and even more broadly. And, and if we have that world, what's happened is that the power of the technology is beyond the capacity of or the sort of consciousness of the users of that technology. So when we say things like ban social media until 21, I would rephrase that as 
how do we make sure we align the power and the dimensionality of harm, potential harm, to the level of consciousness we would want to make sure is in place to wield that power? Another way to think about it, I like the brute force approach because it's easy to understand, right? That's the Ruddian way sometimes. And the final uh, kind of over-the-top recommendation uh, is ban recommendation engines, period. Or at a very bare-bones minimum, ban any recommendation engine to use personal behavioral data. Yeah, this is really interesting. So when we talk about recommendation engines, people should know as why we would want to do something like this. When when Facebook in their own leaked documents uh, over the summer uh, Wall Street Journal report showing that 64% of the extremist groups that people had joined on Facebook were due to Facebook's own recommendation system. So that's like, oh, you're on Facebook and you joined this one group on Facebook for um, you know patriots or something like that. And then it says, hey, by the way, would you like to join this other group called, you know, QAnon Defeat defeat the Global Conspiracy? And 64% of the extremist groups that people joined were due to Facebook's own suggested groups interface happening in the right-hand sidebar, which if it's more than 50%, there's a clear responsibility that Facebook and others have. And this is true of YouTube recommending you down rabbit holes. They recommended Alex Jones conspiracy theories 15 billion times. I think I mentioned that a year ago when we did our interview. So Recommendation systems can be in- incredibly damaging, um, especially the kind of conspiracy correlation matrix that uh, your previous guest, Rene DeResta, who's a colleague of mine, uh, talks about a lot. But I think what we would want are recommendation systems for what would help people. And again, to do that, we would need aligned incentives. I think about like a coach or a mentor is making recommendations based on asymmetric knowledge, but based on what you're looking for in your life, what are your values? And any advertising-based or engagement-based recommendation system where the goal is to somehow keep you on the screen, keep you coming back, keep you doing things, that's where the perversion comes from. And so uh, I think you know the blunt approach is ban all recommendation systems, but then you would lose the suggested other products you could buy on Amazon. Some people might not like that. Like that. So I think we want to be a little bit more surgical with the knife that we're using and carving out engagement-based recommendations from, let's say, merchandise recommendations or for you know, sort of mentorship or coaching recommendations for what kinds of things would be helpful. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I have a sleep app on my phone called Rise that I actually really like. I think it's a good example of a humane technology because it deepens my own inner capacity of awareness for my own sleep cycle. It actually cracks your sort of circadian rhythms. And then the whole point is it can give recommendations based on, you know, your current sleep cycles. How would you want to align that curve better? And, it, it you know, you would want a system to give you personalized recommendations there. Um, that's because it's not going to steer me into QAnon groups or to crazy town or to conspiracies or to, um, you know, God knows what else. Uh, it, it's really because it's on my side to sleep and live better. And so personalized recommendations that are about helping us live better, I think can be good, but we need to be really careful. I would put this on the agenda of the constitutional convention. Cool. Well, I think, uh, I think you gave good, thoughtful uh, analysis to my rather blunt and brutal suggestions, uh, and that's good. And that's the kind of work that we would need to do at this constitutional convention. So I want to thank you, Tristan, for an amazingly interesting uh, conversation. For those of you who haven't seen The Social Dilemma, go get it. It's on Netflix. Still up on Netflix? Still up on Netflix. Uh, I would also recommend if people want to go deeper to check out our podcast called Your Undivided Attention. We have one coming out right now with Yuval Harari, the author of Sapiens, really getting deep into the future-looking versions of these issues that uh, I think it's helpful for people to understand, too. And as always, links to everything we mentioned will be on the episode page at jimrutcho.com. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you so much, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.